Ready when you are. Welcome to The Third Wheel. This is going to be our first episode covering the first book of the Stormlight Archive, The Way of Kings, all by our favorite man, Brando Sando, more commonly known as Brandon Sanderson. So we have a bit of a different structure going on because now I am the one with all of the foreknowledge of this series. And I'm Jesse. And I'm Tyler. <laughs> and I'm Beyond. Oh, wow, that was a pause. Well, the thing is, are we, are, was Tyler going to introduce himself as like anything specific? Because if Jesse's the, the reader that... That's up to you, because you guys yeah. are on, like, the same level. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. cause Jesse's the, the all-knowing reader who's taking notes and leading us. And then Tyler's the one that's going to read it before me, because he's a good, diligent boy. Maybe. And then make lots of comments. And then I'm the one that's going to throw in things like sprinkles, because I'm a first-time reader, and I don't know. I suppose my brain just does strange things sometimes with books. That's why we're here. To catalog your strange thoughts. Strange thoughts. Yeah. Speaking of which, my note structure is not very similar to the way Tyler used to do it. So This will be fun. Yeah, there might be a bit of an adjustment period. Uh, We'll figure it out. Yeah, we're all learning. It's a learning and growing experience. Yeah, learning and growing. Like, there's some nervous spren emanating from jesse is it actually pronounced spren what okay it's spren how could it not be spren i don't know Uh, what do you think it could possibly be that isn't spren spreen perhaps oh no they stabbed me in my spreen my spleen but yeah because i've just been calling them sprinkles or sprankles so well, good thing they're not a central part of this world at all. Are they? Well, are they sentient? <laughs> only, a... only one of them. Do 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 they level up? Are they like <gasps> your Pokemon has evolved? I was just gonna say, are they like Pokemon? Are they like Pokemon? And then are they color coded? They're wow. definitely color coded. All I have to say is, we'll get to it. <laughs> Very much we'll get to it. And then, like, are there, like, sprinkle and human relationships of the romantic and sexual tension kind? Oh, God. Or, oh, I was really wondering, okay, because you you got the Sorrow McSorrow trauma boy, whose names start with K, and then there's the wind sprinkle, and, you know, like... Maybe we should discuss it that when we get... It just seems kind of hetero interaction, so I just wanted to know know the details. I think we should discuss that when we get to it in the story. Okay. Yeah, we can do something like going in order, such as starting with the prelude. Hey, all Tyler here. I am just cutting in because we totally forgot that we needed to read this amazing review that we got. Uh, this is from Gentris on iTunes, I believe who says, I sampled 13 other Wheel of Time podcasts, and this one is by far superior to all of them. I was shocked at the language used in other podcasts. Wheel of Time is not explicit like Game of Thrones. Why not be in character and use flaming and bloody instead? In this podcast, I heard one cuss word in four hours of commentary. I'm a Navy vet, a literal sailor. I'm not a prude, I just think it detracts from the discussion. It's obvious that the hosts are well-read in fantasy. They're articulate and they speak slowly and don't talk over each other. I also love that all three are on different stages of the series. Beyond's perspective as a new reader is especially engaging. There's been a few times that I've had the same thought as Tyler and Jesse discuss and explain without spoilers. 
I was going to wait until I listened to a few more episodes before posting my review, but it's just too good and I want them to keep producing. Thank you so much for your insight, your real-world analogies, your genre comparisons, your dry humor, and your wit. You had me at, this entire society are people that clown on monsters. That's a little congratulatory. I don't know that we're quite up to snuff on all that praise. Uh, I will say if we sound articulate and like we know what we're doing, that's just because Jesse and for the last couple episodes I have been doing a much better job at editing than we've been doing at saying our thoughts correctly the first time we think them. But we absolutely love getting this feedback. As soon as Jesse sent this to me, I was overjoyed. Really made my night. I sent it to Bion. They couldn't have been happier. Yeah, so thank you, Gentris, and we love getting any feedback. Not just the kind that says how great we are. Anyway, uh, back to the actual show. Prelude number one. <laughs> yeah, you know it's good when there's two different prologues. Yeah, I think I texted you like, I don't even know what chapter I'm reading because there's a prologue and then there's a second prologue, which is like 10,000 years later. And then there's the chapter one, which is like six years later. Which and is also chapter sort two of is like, Yeah, and then chapter two is like eight months later than that. It's like, yeah. I just want one chapter to end and then the next chapter to start, please. <laughs> Yeah, the beginning of The Way of Kings is notoriously herky-jerky, even for devoted fans. Okay. If you go into the discussion circles, everyone will always say that the beginning of Way of Kings is a little tough. Okay, well that's really good to hear, because, spoilers, I might be pretty harsh on this, and it's good to know that I wasn't, like, reading it wrong by hearing everybody say that it's really good, and then being like, wow, this seems not really good. I found this really interesting because I read on the same Kendall thing as Tyler does, so I get to see all of his sassy notes. And he was so anti, whereas I was like, you know, this is fine. Like, it's a little silly to have two prologues. You could have named them differently. Could have worked on some some other sort of arrangement. But I didn't find it that bad. Yeah. Well, the thing is that Brandon Sanderson really isn't afraid to throw a lot of stuff at you that he doesn't expect you to understand. You don't say. So there's a lot in the beginning that's sort of like, wait, what am I reading? Um, but ho- that's why I'm here. There's going to be a lot of my notes in this that are like, I need you to stop. <laughs> I guess we'll get to it. Yeah. So this first chapter that we have is the prelude. It involves a herald named Kalak who has survived a desolation. We already have a lot of pronouns. Lots yeah. of capital letters. There's a lot of fantasy words. Yeah. Uh, Bion and I talked about this before recording. Because, um, spoilers, a lot of this is going to be... If this is his Wheel of Time, a lot of this is going to be comparison to the Wheel of Time. Because uh, it's my touchstone of epic fantasy. There was a lot of talk between Bion and I about like the tone that these words are used in comes off as different to me and that might not be a function of like the actual in sentence usage of the word maybe the words themselves it's partially the words themselves and it's partially um i think the stories that they're in when i read that the Soldam are Martha Damain that can be controlled by an Adam because they can learn to touch the true source. It reads as very silly to me in a way that's like, I know that Jordan didn't mean it like that, but then when I read 
hold on. I have a note in here that's like, it just says, I hate this. <laughs> wow, this is going to be fun. Okay, spoilers for chapter three. Carbronth, City of Bells, Shalon, and like Elokar, the King of Cabranth, Tara Van Gien. It's just like, I, don't do this to me. Well, I mean, those are more names and less jargon. Like, But the jargon similarly comes off in the same way. And again, this might just be the start of it. I'm like, I'm not trying to be too down on it. I just mean, um, tonally, it came off as very different to me to be like, here's a wall of fantasy words versus this entire book. Like, here's a wall of fantasy words in a serious book versus the Wheel of Time comes off as entirely silly except for the few moments where it's not, and so it's easier to accept there. Mm -hmm. I think I have a different perspective than Tyler on this, because I didn't find Wheel of Time silly, I found it boring, because by the time (laughs) you get to the part where he's throwing in these words and describing it, I'm like, sir, you have so many words here. Please stop trying to go over the word count. Stop. Um, (laughs) He's, He's like, and therefore the... Webster's Dictionary defines me making my word count as... Yeah, it's 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 not entertaining for me in that way. And um, a, a contrast, sometimes, like, a book that I recently tried to read was The Left Hand of Darkness by Ursula K. Le Guin, and it's super sci-fi words right there. And it was so hard to get through the first chapter because every single page there was another, like, weird thing with too many consonants, and I just wanted to give up. Whereas with this one, be- because his writing is more to the point... I was able Definitely. to keep going. I, I just kind of like picked, I was like, okay, that's another something I'll probably pay attention to later. And I just kept going. It, it didn't stop me from reading. It didn't make me put it down in frustration and have to like, I don't know, eat an apple or something. <laughs> I'm glad. I think that's a, a, about the healthiest way to go about Brandon Sanderson's writing of this series. Because I literally have only done like one bullet point and I only realized how many pronouns I was using when I was saying it. Because for me, I know all this stuff, and it's sort of blended into the background for me of this is stuff that, like, you don't know when you start. So I do think it gets better once you get more immersed. Okay, yeah. And, I mean, it's been a long time since I read an epic fantasy where there were just terms that I had no idea on. Well, prepare yourself. Yeah, like, my knowledge of this series is the one sentence that I sent you about, like, honor being dead or something and Mm -hmm. then i know that something about the phrase the words of radiance isn't like a nice title like the shadow rising it's like a literal physical thing eh, or something like this is the sum total of my knowledge i know like virtually nothing about this i know even less yeah it might just be that this is me coming into a series like this for the first time, and so I'm just needing to get back used to it again. It does take a sec. This Brandon Sanderson describes the Stormlight Archive as, you need to trust me as a okay. writer. <laughs> okay. Uh, I might trust him with a wiki open in another tab. Not for, like, spoilers, but just as, like, a glossary. I think there's a glossary in the back of the book. I... We'll check. That would legit change the entire way that I was looking at this book. Tyler means his order. In the back of the book, there's the Ars Arcanum that has a lot of stuff. 
I see that. Yep. Maybe I'll read through that, because there's a lot of words here that I don't know, but gosh, it would be good to know them when they first come up instead of, like, 20 chapters later. Well, luckily, you're not expected to know it yet, so don't worry about it. Fair enough. We're still on the first bullet point. Yeah. So, Kalak has survived a desolation, and he has apparently been through many of them, often resulting in him dying. So he has died many times, but this time he's survived. Yeah, there's like 10 of these people, and they're constantly dying. Or 13, maybe? 10. 10. And they're like, constantly re- I couldn't tell if they were saying that they were, like, literally time-looping this battle, or if it's just these battles keep happening, they keep fighting them, some of them keep dying, but then as long as they leave one person behind, the rest of them are allowed to leave. So, different... This whole situation is described in different ways throughout the series, but this is the only time we actually get to see it happen in person. Okay. And the way it's framed here is that... After this desolation, only one of them has died, Talenalot. Um, there's a thing in this series with um, palindromic names. Okay. So just keep an eye out for that. Should I be keeping an eye out for people with similar names? Or is this just like he kept hitting random name generator for fantasy? I mean, those are two different questions. I guess I mean like, okay, this point of view character sort of has a similar cadence to their name as Kaladin. It starts with a K. So, I mean, ling- linguistically, Kaladin is literally named after Kalak. Okay, that's kind of my question is, should I be looking at this as like, hey, wink, wink, maybe Rand and Luz Theron don't sound similar, but maybe there's a connection versus like... I will say that Kaladin is not Kalak Reborn, but okay. it's sort of like someone today being named after John the Saint. Like, all of our biblical names, in this Uh world, they have the same sort of thing around, like, the Radiance. Understood. So, in this iteration of the Desolation, Talenalot has died, and usually, after a Desolation, after some of, of the Heralds have died, they all choose to go back to be tortured together. But this time, they've decided to break their Oath Pact and abandon Talenalot. Wow, sucks to be that guy. Yeah, for real. We're going to have a bit more development about what this actually means. They don't give you the full picture here, I will say. Yeah, I would think not, because there's, like, no picture here. <laughs> like, so it's clear that something is happening, but then we flash forward so far that it's like, I'm sure that we will understand in the future. I mean, this is, like, mythic origin genesis style background story yeah this almost feels like if we were reading the um, chapter in shadow rising about like creating the boar first essentially and it's like what am i trying to say i'm sure that this matters i just don't know why and if the answer is just trust that it eventually will then that's fine but it's, like, frustrating to read and just be like, okay, I guess I'll remember this for later. Okay. So, as I said, as I said, you're not expected to know why this is important yet. Okay. It's just, with my knowledge, 
I understand literally every sentence of this prologue. Okay. And <laughs> there's, what, like three books out? Yeah. And I'll probably understand more after the fourth book. So, um, so essentially, they say that they're going to break the Oath Pact, and they're going to say that the Desolations are over, and that they finally won. And now their disciples, the Knights Radiant, will serve their role as sort of the leaders of humanity it's also noted that these heralds have sh blades that are considered more powerful than shard blades yeah it sounded like they were sorry go on yeah so they're more powerful than shard blades and they left them all lodged in the same rock yeah and it sounded like they were unique it wasn't described specifically but the other times that we have seen the shard blades they're not necessarily described as like like, there's a finite number in existence. This is that one. It's very much like, this guy has a shard blade that looks like this. Do you understand what I'm saying, right? Yeah, I will say that okay. in the present day of the story, they do not know how to make shard blades, so there are a finite number of them. Yeah, I think they mentioned that in the prologue, that, like, yeah, they say if somebody knew how to make them, they would have a problem. Yeah. So, Bion, how is your feeling about the prelude? I mean, sometimes I wonder if I just purposely pick, or not purposely, but subconsciously pick an opinion that's very much counter to Tyler's. <laughs> I wasn't particularly bothered. I was like, all right, there's these mythical power people, and they've been suffering for a while, and then they're going to go back on their vows, because, sorry, T-Man, you've been sacrificed. <laughs> I'm fine T-Dog. <laughs> uh, they call him Taln, which is... Shorter, but not necessarily easier. Haha, <laughs> tall, shorter. I get it. So they leave him, and then they're just gonna go off. Yeah, I, I wasn't really captivated, but I also was just kind of like, okay, there are some powerful people, then they gave up, because they're tired, and they're passing it on to the future generations. Yeah, I mean, that's essentially all you can really get from it on your first time through. I'll just say, it's worth coming back to when you know more. Okay, and that's totally fine. I mean, that's how the prologue to Wheel of Time is, right? It's like, mm -hmm. you don't know anything about why this guy named Elan is torturing a dude named Luz Theron who's going crazy and crying about a lady named Ileana. Like, those words mean nothing. But mm -hmm. then you come back to it and you're like, oh, this is the thing. Um, so now, 4,500 years later, mm -hmm. uh, we, get, we get the prologue. Sorry, so, do you mean 4,500 years later, like in the chronology of the book, or in the chronology of us recording this podcast? Both. Okay. Uh, so, we have the prologue, and this is where we start seeing, we have quotes at the beginning of each chapter, apparently taken from people right before their death. Yeah. I don't know what this means. The historian seems really dismissive of, of the people. Uh, hmm. A couple of them seem like they are caring about them. I think it was, uh, it's either like chapter four or five, the person who is in theory making these comments, don't wait on me to They just don't seem very it. objective. They seem very much like a biased history. Mm -hmm. The quotes or the commentary on the quotes? The commentary on the quotes. Because mm -hmm. the quotes themselves are just, you know, people kind of suffering. Because death and whatnot. But uh, the person commenting upon them as the historian or the collector of Almost these... an archivist. 
the archivist of these stories um, definitely has an their 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 own uh, bias worldview etc and how they're presenting it and I'm not so, really sure how they tie in with each chapter. So the quotes themselves aren't supposed to necessarily be like thematically about the chapter. Have you read Mistborn, Bion? Yeah. You know how in Mistborn they have little chunks of the Last Emperor's journal at the beginning of each chapter? Bion doesn't remember anything that's ever happened to them. <laughs> I mean, I have I have had multiple head injuries. I do have that defense. And I think yeah. I did read Mistborn during one of recovery periods. Well, you don't remember need to worry about... Remember that they're cool about... metals. <laughs> the metals are good. <laughs> Sorry, I keep interrupting. don't need to worry about, like, thematic synthesis. It's just, there's sometimes things of note that honestly only really make sense later. So, a lot of it right now is just texture. But I'll just say, having read all of this, this all makes perfect sense, which is crazy to me. In a way, I kind of like it simply because with a lot of these chapters, there'll be a picture of a map and the quote. And then that the chapter heading will have a nice looking little arc or whatever i was gonna ask do the chapter headings map onto the character that's the point of view the icon does okay I, yeah i guess that's what i meant um let me find an example and try and describe it out loud so the, like the arch i think is the same every time uh the, the arch is absolutely different yeah oh it is yeah like i'm pretty sure each one is different and i just thought that was kind of nice just like setting it up isn't it oh they are uh but the icon is also different, and the icons are specifically about the characters. Okay. So I should be paying attention to who goes with what. There isn't, like, an insane amount of POV characters in this series. I guess what I mean is, like, are we going to get a point where we see a new icon and we're like, oh my god, what is that? Who? You'll have to read and find out. Oops. Oh no, he's saying the Jordan words. <laughs> Uh, one last thing I will say is that this, the way that you're describing these quotes at the beginning of every chapter sounds very similar to the uh, Vlad Taltosh books, which mm -hmm. I know that you haven't read, but they do a similar thing to the Mistborn ones where contained within the individual book, all of the chapter headers are the same thing, are thematically linked. In Mistborn, like you said, sometimes it's the... What do they call him? The final emperor? God king something. The god emperor of mankind. <laughs> it's his journal uh, being led up the mountain, whereas in the Taltosh books, they do a similar thing, and it's only at the end that you sort of understand, you know... Why it's there. Yeah, like all of these were a description of things that he needs uh, to have dry cleaned, and at the end, you understand that he's, like, turning in his dry cleaning from the clothes that he was wearing when he got killed at the end of the book. You know, stuff like that. Well, yeah, I'll say that you, by the, at the end of this book, you'll know why these quotes are here. Okay, understood. So, in the actual prologue itself... <laughs> we should start the prologue! <laughs> uh, we follow a point-of-view character, Seth, or Zeth, Seth, Zeth, Zeth. Zesty Seth. Zesty. He's very zesty. He Seth, is. son, son, Valano, truthless of Shinovar, who's wearing white on the day he's to kill a king, which is hype, 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 hype. Fun. Uh, yes. Is he a slave? Are, are, are the truthless slaves? All men are slaves. I mean, they are. 
So wh- what do you get that from? Well, because he's, he, he's not allowed to kill himself, and he has to follow the masters, and he has his own culture that he references, and he finds the, the rules he's following a bit strange, but he's doing it because he's been told to do so. And he doesn't have much personal involvement, and yeah, that could be a mercenary, but just the way he interacts with things makes me think very much a serving class. He's also one of those filthy parchment. He's not. He's serving the parchment. He's serving them. He was hired by them, and that surprises the king when the king's like, why? Who did this? And then Zesty Seth is like, ah, yeah, it was these dudes. They hired me. And then the king's like, what? And he dies. Yeah, that's actually a pretty common mix-up that people have reading this first chapter. Zeth is from a country called Shinovar, where they look kind of different from other people, but they're definitely human. Parshendi are not human. Okay. I'm just going to say, Bion, you have a pretty good pickup on what's going on with Zeth as a truthless, but we'll find out more okay. about what exactly that means. It is not a title of distinction and honor. No. It's not like a badass assassin name. It's like, we're the truthless. We're so cool. It's it's not a good thing to be it, truthless. It's, it seems like a low caste distinction. <laughs> yeah. Which I didn't pick up on initially, but... Me picking we'll get- up things that neither of you did? What is we'll get this? there. Zeth is here at a treaty signing celebration between the Alethi and the Parshendi. But at this very peace treaty signing celebration, Zeth is here to kill the Alethi king, and he's being sent by the Parshendi. That's sort of weird. That's a bad move, Parshendi. That's disrespectful. You come into their house on this day of celebration and peace with murder. So it's noted that the Parshendi have sort of chitinous black and red skin, and they're considered to be sort of a cousin of this slave class called the Parshmen that the Alethi use very frequently. So that's just the context of how the Alethi relate to the Parshendi. They think of the Parshendi as sort of just a bizarro offshoot of their slave class that they had a some skirmishes with when they first met and now are signing a treaty. In later chapters, they say that Parshmen are essentially animals. Yeah, people see Parshmen as just sort of like a horse. Great. Yeah. Um, So, making his way through this party, Zeth bumps into a drunk Dalinar Colon, the brother of the king. We'll get back to him. Okay. (laughs) So... This chapter does a lot of lifting on the world building of the current world that the story takes place in. Um, We get notes about spheres infused with stormlight and women wearing dresses that cover their left hand. Gotta keep pure. Yes, that is their idea of modesty, is covering your left hand. And um, he notices that... There are statues of all of the heralds except Shalash. There's a lot of freaking details here that won't make sense until later. Um, I'm going to be... I should probably just stop saying that because it's sort of implied. So they, 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 they include the herald T-Man who was abandoned, but they don't include S-something. T- S T-Dog, I think he prefers. So it's noted that her statue wasn't that it was omitted, it's that it had been removed. We'll get hmm. to it. That's rude. 
So Seth says that it's profane to walk on stone. And we also get our first mention of Spren, or as Bion calls them, Sprankles. It's just so much more fun to call them Sprankles. So just based on what we've seen of Spren, like, what do you think you know? (laughs) They exist. True enough. Like, like I can't... Okay. So Kaladin says that because his wind one that has a name that I don't remember, Sill, Sill, is strong, she can physically interact with the world. So I'm assuming, therefore, that the rest of them that we see throughout this entire thing can't. Um, They seem to be mindless. It's unclear to me whether... They exist as flavorless spren and then react to the emotions of people around them and, like, come into being as that emotion, or whether they are just created from the ether when someone or a group of someone's feels an emotion. And there seems to be a lot of things that people in the world know about them, and there's no real explanation for them at this point. They just kind of are. I'll just say that there are characters in this series that are devoted to the study of Spren, so we're not going to be the only ones asking questions about Spren. Okay, well that is good to know, that they're not just some low-key detail in the world that everybody would know, and then eventually we get an explanation for why, that there's still enough unknown about them that we will get to learn it organically. My current headcanon for them is that they're magical mitochondria, and some of them develop... Powerhouse of the world. Yeah, you know, they're, they're, they're magical mitochondria, and some of them, after either being around people or certain areas of motions, elements, etc., they become more specifically evolved Pokemon of themselves. <laughs> and then you might have, I don't know what the violet or the pain... Also, later, there there being, like, a pain sprinkle found very entertaining. Like, hello, I am pain, the avatar of pain, the sprinkle. It just... There's a lot of them. Yeah, there's a lot of them. So that's currently where I'm going with them, where they're they're alive, not necessarily sentient, unless certain activities, actions, outside, etc. act upon them. Yeah, unless otherwise stated, they're not sentient. All these questions are healthy, I will say. Great. Um, the next bit of world building, I mostly have world building stuff highlighted in here. There isn't like a ton of like plot until like this action scene at the end. Mm-hmm. Um, the other bit of world building is that the Alethi, so there's a lot of talk in this section about Alethi and Voranism. Uh, excuse me, what? Voranism. Okay. Voran nations. Um, we hear Shalon talk about uh, how her country of Jokaved is also a Voran nation, like Alethkar, so she feels some sort of connection to them. So Voranism is the religion that respects the heralds, essentially, and they're sort of a cultural block. So being a Voran nation is just sort of like a cultural block of nations that share some cultural expectations. And all Voran nations separate their nobility from their underclass by the color of your eyes. So it is eyeball racism. It is. We talked about the eyeball racism. Not on air. Not on air. No, it was just, Bion just asked 
is there actually eyeball racism? There is. To which, yeah, I guess the answer is some people are Uchiha and some aren't. <laughs> so yes, uh, if you have light-colored eyes, you're in the nobility. Please, if, if you have a Tasharangan? That would be Byakugan. Anyways. The Byakugan is the light-colored, honey. Anyways, dark eyes are not allowed to carry the sword. They use spears instead. So, that's sort of the all the world-building stuff that we get as Zeth is sort of wandering through this party. And then we get a big explosive action sequence that I have some mixed feelings about. I skimmed it. I, yeah, so I have a number of notes about, when you say action sequence, do you mean like everything from here until the conversation at the end of the prologue? Pretty much. Okay. So let's go through these notes and talk about them. I think it's really interesting that whatever the shard blades and Zesty's lashings are, are clearly the same power. Mm. Or maybe not, but I'm led to believe that because the shard blades have, like, condensation that occurs on them. And he mentions that uh, when he performs lashings, like, he's expending so much power that the cold around him creates frost on his clothing. So okay. if, if those aren't the same thing, then I guess I'm reading it wrong. So they draw from the same kind of magic, but there are other shard bearers in this story that don't have magic powers. In fact, they all don't have magic powers. Yeah, I think he specifically says like he's the only one that he knows of in however many hundreds of years yeah. to ever have these powers. Um, so he mentions that... Something that I thought of while reading this uh, scene was, like, does Brandon Sanderson like this kind of power where you are building up inside you and then trying to expend it correctly vis-a-vis metals in Mistborn, and you are expending it in a way where you're, like, manipulating force, manipulating gravity— or because these are all quote-unquote Cosmere books and in theory have some sort of like high-tier connection between the something in them that I don't know, are these like literally related? I'm not asking for an answer. This is just something that was coming to me. Like it has to be one of those, right? Like either there is a textual reason that these powers function the same or it's just that Sanderson likes writing this power, which is perfectly fine. It's a cool power. I'll just say, wow, you're right. There is a reason. Wow, great. Yeah, that was just my first thought was like, wow. So it's a lomancy, but slightly different. Yeah, you consume the energy that is given off by the high storms that is often trapped inside of gemstones. Interesting. Well, that kind of answers the question of what storm light even is. It's light that comes from the storm. Wow. My brain has become galactic. It seems really dangerous to make magic marvels that you just carry around. Yeah, I was sort of thinking about that. They talk about, like, digging around in your coin purse full of, like, glass spheres. Yeah. It's like, this sounds so awkward. That, yeah. And especially because um, if, if you don't have it full of the magical stormlight, then they might not trust your glass globe things. Yeah, they think yeah. it's counterfeit. 
Yeah. Essentially, it glowing with stormlight proves that the, that the gems inside are authentic. For me, I like a lot of what's happening in this action scene. Like, I really like it. I like the actual things that are happening, but the actual exposition about how lashing works, for me, feels a little weird. It feels like how Brandon Sanderson would explain it, not like how Zeth would explain it. Uh, is Zesty a character that we should be understanding the internal voice of? I mean, there's some stuff in this chapter where he has, like, strong opinions about stuff, and he has That's a... Tr- he has like a specific tone. It feels like a very authorial tone talking about the way the lashings work rather than like any sort of Zeth tends to make judgments from what we've seen. Yeah. I, the action scene for me felt kind of in Shonen, Shonen stuff where it's like, and then he did this, which means this yeah, I was, capital words. They're capital because they're important. Yeah. I was going to talk about that actually was like the, First off, Jesse, yes, I totally agree with you. The The way that the exposition is written in the rest of the chapter and in the rest of this section definitely comes off as you will understand this later, which kind of makes me question why this particular fight needs to be so well explained in like the exact mechanics of how everything works mm-hmm. and isn't like... I almost think this scene would be a lot cooler if this guy was just, like, slamming his hand into walls and the entire room was reorienting its gravity. And he was going back and forth with this dude, and his only thought in this was, like, gotta dodge, don't let the sword touch me. And it was just a back and forth until he took the guy down. And then we found out later, or, like, we just saw the soldiers who previously had all been more than happy to rush him, just, like throw down their stuff and run away you know if you're like if you're trying to establish that this guy has magic that hasn't been seen in hundreds of years that he's this hyper competent fighter that can beat somebody with a blade and with the armor then it definitely does feel a little weird to have him like stop during this and and lecture about it yeah like internal monologue the mechanics of his powers the other thing i was going to say is that not to get too in the weeds about the exact wording, because I don't have specific examples. It's just kind of a feeling. But the So I'm currently reading Wheel of Time, and then at work I'm reading Ward, the worm sequel by Wildbow, and also I'm reading this for this podcast. And so having the three different authors writing fights in three different ways is so interesting to read. The way that like Jordan writing fights almost has this... When he, when the fight is one-on-one like this, it almost has this like romantic poetry feel to it, in the sense of Boar rushes down the mountain, meets Hummingbird, kisses the rose, and then this one is just very like, he did Mechanical. this, yeah, he did this, he did this, this is where I am, this is where that person is, whereas Ward, at least, um, I know you've read some of it, that character is very internal monologue. The action almost takes a backseat to, like, how the character feels about the action, which I know that one is first person. This is close third person, Uh but we are getting uh, Zesty's internal monologue here. Um, Uh I just wanted to throw out that, like, it's not that it's jarring, it's just that it's really interesting being able to read three completely different styles of fights simultaneously. Yeah. 
in this one, when we have people using magic, we don't have to hear about the taint all the time. Yeah. It's nice. There's no taint. We're taintless. (laughs) You're also aggro. I will say this almost, there was part of it, uh, if we're still just talking about the fight, I have way more to say. I took like six notes on this fight. Well, I can sort of get through the actual plot points. Okay. Then. So essentially, Zeth fights through some mooks and then encounters a Shardbearer guard. Zeth notes that perhaps a Shardbearer could defeat him, kill him, and end his miserable life. So Zeth isn't isn't loving it right now. No, uh, he's, he's that thing I sent you about uh, Magnus Archives like an hour ago. Pretty much. So we get some notes about how Shardblades work. They're generally inviolable. They will cut through anything inorganic and kill anything organic. Yeah, depending on the hit. He says, like, if you get hit in the arm, your arm is just deadened forever. Yeah. But, like, a hit that would kill you with a regular weapon just passes through your armor and kills you instantly. Unless you have this special shard plate armor. Unless you have the special shard plate armor, which... Which So this is kind of what I wanted to talk about, was this exact component of the fight. One, the way that it's described when he hits the shard plate is so... Like, I felt... That's the exact thing. My note says, wow, such video game. It's so, like... You have to hit him twice in the same spot before you can tear his armor away. And then the third time that you hit him, you'll actually deal the damage. It feels like I'm playing a Zelda game. Worth noting, a Stormlight Archive tabletop system just came out today. Wow, interesting. The other thing, the other problem that I had with this Shardblade fight was if we are supposed to... The first part of this prologue is written wrong for Zesty to die in this fight. Mm. Therefore, as soon as I realized that, there was no tension in this fight. Because when you... This is sort of the thing that... um, Spoilers for anyone that cares about episode 9 of Star Wars. But this is sort of the problem that that movie has where like... As soon as you raise the stakes to every Star Destroyer has a Death Star gun on it, there's literally no chance that you lose or, like, receive any sort of setback. Because, I mean, okay, the worst thing that could possibly happen is, like, maybe he gets hit in his offhand arm. But, like, Zesty is no longer in any danger as soon as we understand that one hit kills him. Well, luckily... The vast majority of combat in this series is not Shardbearer on Shardbearer. No, it, and it doesn't seem like it. I just meant that was definitely something that stuck out to me was like, okay, well, the this prologue no longer matters. Or like, this fight no longer matters. Because there's only one way that this ends. That's fair. There is only one way it ends, because it was only written once. Zeth kills the king. Well, you know what I mean. Um, so essentially, Zeth realizes that this Shardbearer guard is actually the king himself, and then they fight to the death. Yes. Uh, Zeth does some shenanigans with his magic and doesn't actually end up killing the king with his shard blade. And it, with his dying words, the king says to tell my brother that he must find the most important words a man can say. Yeah, which gets, like, written in blood as a message because Zesty isn't going to stick around. Yeah. Note, later in this section, we learn that Alethi men 
don't read or write. So <laughs> when they fi- when they find this note written in blood next to the king, people are like, "What the? He knows how to read? <laughs> like men don't read." Yeah, and I don't want to sound like I'm too down on it. I did have more notes that basically just boil down to like the powers are cool, the mechanics of the fight are interesting to read. Just the outcome wasn't. I, I just don't want to sound like I absolutely hated it. Uh-huh. I skimmed it because I found the description of the lashings and every single motion uh, very distracting and hard to keep interest in because it seems like a tonal shift. And so hopefully future action scenes won't be like that. Also, I thought lashings were very silly. And the capital S shard, etc. Well, you're like lashing things to each other. Well, we're on to chapter one. Yes. Chapter one. Only 51 minutes into the recording. You're going to have a fun time editing, honey. I will. And this is like a third prologue. Yeah. It is, though. Hey, third time's the charm on something that makes sense, huh? So, essentially... Uh, the way this chapter is structured is that it takes place five years after Zeth has killed the king. And we get a scene with a battalion in Bright Lord Amaram's army fighting in a land dispute. Like a very petty land dispute. And there's a 15-year-old fresh-faced soldier named Sen who is taken into the team of... Someone that people have been calling Kaladin Stormblast. Yeah, so this definitely made me want to, well, not this, but later on, something that said definitely made me want to come back to this chapter and reread it, which I guess I will in the future since I guess more stuff's going to make sense as we go. The They mention later that Kaladin is 19 years old. Mm-hmm. And that, like, I don't know that I am capable of believing that statement what do you mean like i don't know maybe it was just the way that i was reading it in that moment and i need to read it again now knowing exactly how young they mean but that's that wasn't how young it came off as when they were like oh the young captain kaladin Stormblast, the guy that's in charge of us all i guess he just seemed a little more well i mean there's a couple things a he is supposed to be very unusual okay We get Sen thinking, like, this guy seems way too young to be acting like he does and for people to respect them like they do. And also, B, years are different here. Kaladin is younger than a 19-year-old would be here. I mean, older than a 19-year-old would be here. Okay. So there's a bit of both. Okay. He is, like, a preternaturally gifted leader and also not just 19. Okay. Yeah, that definitely makes me feel better. I... When I read this, I guess I was reading him as more like mid, maybe early 20s. He's essentially early 20s. Okay. Well, that's a little easier to swallow than like a 19-year-old, which means that he was 18 when he got captured, probably, which means that like... Well, he he's uh, 19 in He's 19... First... No, he's 19... Oh, is he? And I think so. I just know that uh, he's 19 as of the eight months later is when they actually bring it up. So, like, end of 18, start of 19 years old. It just felt very, like, I just wasn't sure that those numbers lined up. I wonder if that's because the two other book series you're reading now tends to have older people, or... 
Well, Wheel of Time certainly doesn't, and neither does Ward. Wait, I don't know. For, for it, it didn't seem too disbelieving for me. I guess what it is is that in the rest of this section that we read, Kaladin is written as very like, very jaded, very cynical. Like he's been through it all in these eight months. He's been through it all in the army. He was about to be promoted up to you know fighting the real battles, and so hearing oh he's only nineteen was very, it was kind of jarring. Because in the other two series that I'm reading, when you have a 19-year-old, they act like an idiot teenager. Mm. Well, you'll get some of that with him. Okay, and and yes, hearing that he's not actually 19 and there's weird stuff going on is perfectly fine. It was just very like, is that how a 19-year-old acts? Well, he's also very weird. Understood. Are child soldiers a thing in this universe? Because is, is 15 kind of the the youngest first because i'm um, just i i kind of assumed like child soldiers indoctrination into fighting because eyeball racism and territory disputes and there has to be conflict like 14 15 is around as young as it gets we'll get we'll see some stuff later about how it actually goes down of getting involved in these armies okay um so essentially kaladin has bought sen from his original squad in order to protect him. Okay. Kaladin's squad is more organized and well-trained than the rest, and they tend to survive better than all the other squads. Mm-hmm. Uh, his goal is for his squad to be recognized as real fighters and real soldiers and be sent to the Shattered Plains to fight the Parshendi in the Elethi War of Vengeance against the Parshendi, where... He believes that there will be light eyes of integrity. And also somebody, some light eyes that he is looking to kill based on something he says later in the chapter. Uh, I don't know if he, he, I don't know if it's in this chapter because. So later on, there's one guy that he, the first guy that he got sold to that he's like, I'm going to find this dude and put him down. But. Towards the end of this chapter, when the Shardbearer shows up on the horse, um, he's talking to his lieutenant, and the guy, the lieutenant is like, we should hang back, and Kaladin's like, no, that might be him, I have to go after him. No. No? Am I totally misremembering? Mm, Yeah. Regardless, he's a battalion lord. If we kill an officer that high, we're all but guaranteed to be in the next group sent to the Shattered Plains. We're taking him. Imagine it, Dalit. Real soldiers. A war camp with discipline and light eyes with integrity. A place where our fighting will mean something. So at this, at the point of this chapter, he is not guillotine all the light eyes. We get to that later. Okay, I have a quote here that says, Kaladin turned toward Dalit. That's one of Hala's officers. He might be the one. It was just my reading based on the one and him being the first light eyes that we've seen mentioned that he was referring to a light eyes that he is going after. And then you don't know that, sir. And then, like you said, regardless, he's a battalion lord, which meant we are going to kill him no matter what. But he might be the guy that I'm after. I also read this chapter in that way. Unless the phrase bright lord and him being light eyes are different things, in which case that's just my reading bad. Is he just the one, as in, like, that prize to be taken to get us the next step to... Pretty much. Okay, I understand. As in, this is the, like, yeah. this is the one, as in, this is our chance. Understood. I, I won't give up my chance. Understood. You're not throwing away your shot. Thank you for 
amending my reference. No worries. Essentially, this is this chapter is a lot of why this beginning is so herky jerky. It's like I, I don't know that this chapter is strictly necessary. Yeah, I mean, except to show that like Kaladin used to be a cool guy and then immediately messed up. <laughs> yeah, like well, not even messed up, but like. Has gotten messed up. The rest of the time that we see him, he seems like a completely different character. And the idea of, like, in the span of eight months, he has gone from, we're going to be the best and coolest, and it's my only duty in life to protect these people until we can all be the best and coolest. And then into, like, I'm giving up on life. The only thing that matters is that I don't die. But besides that, there's no hope. And it's like... Eight months, huh? Well, with the eight months later in in that first chapter, he said, I might be a slave, but I don't have to think like a slave or something like that. That's, and, yeah. And then later chapters with within this time has passed, but still time, it hasn't been like months later. He, he's like, I'm I'm a slave and I've accepted this. This is under the, the same slaver. Does that make sense? Timing wise for me, it felt as if eight months later, he still had that optimism, but... As he continued to dwell with his thoughts in the awful carriage thing. Slave cage. Slave cage. Essentially, these chapters we see of him later are like the last gasps of any idealism he has. Okay. Yeah. Like, it's been slowly stripped away over a long period of time. And these chapters that we see of him as a slave in the slave wagons are like the end of any hope he has. Okay. Essentially, we get... We get the whole, but wait, it gets worse shtick a bunch of times for him in this section. Luckily, it doesn't keep on that way the entire book. It's just to set up the fact that he is completely a defeated person at the beginning of the book. Yeah, maybe I should be reading this twice, because the the thing that you're describing, I don't know. That's why I almost wonder if I should just be reading every section twice is because maybe I was so taken off guard by this next chapter of him eight months later that it was like, like, I didn't see a through line from there to here. They felt like two completely different characters. And I understand that that's because it's like his entire squad got wiped out. He's now a slave. He's tried to escape 10 times. He's branded. There's no, there's never going to be an escape. But it's also very much a like... We are introduced to this character at the high point, and then literally the next time we cut from I am at the high point and I'm about to find that there is an even higher point for me to be at, to I am now so low that I have accepted that I am a slave for the rest of my life. Yeah. I mean, that's the structure. (laughs) Okay. Maybe it's also that it's like the first and then second chapters. I know it's like the third and fourth, but like listed as chapters one and two. There's no, like, um, like, I don't care about him yet. I mean, it's definitely jarring, and I think it's supposed to be jarring, but I don't think that's a good enough excuse. Like, as I said, the beginning of the series is notoriously herky-jerky, and this is a big part of it, is that we get this sort of jump. We get something that's like 4,500 years later, eight years later, eight months later. Yeah. It's- like, sort of hard to place yourself in these first few chapters. Yeah. Maybe I'm just used to reading fan fiction that's so disjointed, wherein this doesn't seem bad to me. Because it's at least it's pretty distinct, like, time has passed. You're mm-hmm. like, all right, 
new place, new location, new suffering. Let's go. Um, as opposed to Wheel of Time, where I was frustrated because I was so ready for things to move on, so ready for any sort of thing to change, where I don't necessarily mind the sudden abrupt thing. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm part of the let's make Tyler read it twice through camp. I feel totally like we, up to you. Yeah, I feel like that's maybe the breakdown for me is not like that Wheel of Time is so great because it has such a slow plotting pace and it gets worse <laughs> as time goes on, but that this almost feels like the opposite where it's like, I have to show you these three scenes to set up the story before we actually get into the events of the book. So we're just going to run through all three of these scenes, and now you're allowed to read the actual book. Essentially. Which, as I said, isn't a, isn't a perfect excuse, but it... It's also and, not the end of the world. Yes. I prefer that to reading a whole book of it. Yeah, of these eight months where he just gets continuously more dejected. Like, we don't need yeah. all of it. No. No, 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 no. I guess all I would want is, like, not necessarily would want... For me, I feel like it would have worked better if chapter two had him a little bit higher. And then, like, okay, what if chapter two was not to be that guy that's like, we're on chapter two, and I think I could write this book better than, like, Brandon Sanderson. Uh, not to not to put him on a pedestal, but, like, I could never do anything close to it. I'm just saying, like, for me, if maybe chapter two had been escape attempt number six and this time he's really got a plan and you know it hasn't worked any of the other times but all we've gotten is beatings and then we cut to chapter three which is seems like it's maybe sometime later and then now we're at 10 times have failed i've gotten them killed the last few times i'm done i think the thing that's supposed to take the place of that is that he in chapter two he makes one last attempt to get the slaver to treat a sick slave hmm and like, yeah, oh, yeah. I, I was gonna say like that. That's a breaking point because he's holding those, being like, I could poison him. I, I know these leaves. I got them. I'm gonna make a really evil tea. And then he's like, Wait, no, my father again with the fathers and the voices of the fathers. Um, and he's like, Wait, no, I'm gonna do one last thing. I know how to heal this guy. This guy is not a goner. And so he tells the the slavers, Hey. He's fixable. And then he thinks, hoping, like, maybe they'll fix him because they drag him near the water. And then he's the dead. But because he was too optimistic, he he crushes the poison leaves. And then even his last-ditch attempt of wanting to maybe poison the slavers is gone. Also, side note, are the slavers dark eyes? So, not to mention the whole, like, light eyes versus dark eyes dynamic, but then the dark eyes enslave their own people. Is that what's happening? I feel like everyone's a filthy dark eyes. So we've sort of slipped into chapter two already. Okay. Uh, One thing that I will say while he's gone is mm -hmm. that explanation totally makes sense to me. And I'm totally on board with what you're saying. That if you take it not as like he jumps straight from I'm the coolest, my squad's going to live to I don't care about anything. Mm -hmm. It still feels like too much of a jump to me to just do off screen. Well, I think the idea is that by the time we see him in chapter two, he's trying to convince himself that nothing matters and that he's just going to be a slave, but he doesn't quite believe it yet. And these chapters are supposed to be like the last light going out. Oh, I was going at it slightly different way, but that works too. It all ends up in the same place, which is, yeah, now that you say that, Beyond, I'm I'm slightly more into it. So essentially at the end of chapter one, Sen blacks out as Kaladin charges a Shardbearer. So in chapter two, we smash cut to eight months later where Kaladin is a slave. 
Which is so sad because, you know, that first chapter was like, yeah, he's going to be the big hero. He's going to save them. And then fade to black and, oh, it's suffering. Congratulations. If Kaladin's so cool, why did he get enslaved? (laughs) Kind of. Hey. Hey. We get stuff about explaining how this happened. Hey, is that, did I just guess the plot? He didn't kill enough people. I mean, he does say in this that the reason he was enslaved is that it wasn't the light eyes he killed that was the problem. It was the light eyes he didn't kill that was the problem. Interesting. That's his story of why he's a slave. Great. Should have murdered more. So, as I said, once you get to this point, now Kaladin is like guillotine all the light eyes. He, He isn't necessarily in that place before. This cat is killing me. You know what's killing me? Tivlakov. Reading that word. Almost ended my life. That's a tough one. Yeah, and you read it a lot, and I feel like a lot of words are just kind of, like, how many consonants am I allowed to put around this one vowel before the police come and take me to jail? I think Tavlakov is the limit. (laughs) Well, thank God. We found it early. There's nowhere to go but up. So, Kaladin has multiple brands on his forehead, one noting him as a particularly dangerous slave uh, that he got for trying to escape a few too many times and hurting people. Yeah, I think they said he has, I don't remember if they said it's two brands and one of them is like a pair or if he has three brands. All glyphs are glyph pairs. Understood. So we got this quote where Kaladin says, Thanks, every person he had ever tried to protect had ended up dead time and time again, and now here he was, in an even worse situation than where he'd begun. It was better not to resist. This was his lot, and he was resigned to it. There was a certain power in that, a freedom, the freedom of not having to care. And this is pretty much book one Kaladin.jpg. Great. It's him dealing with this. At one point in here, Kaladin yells the phrase, storm you. And I, I was reading this at work, and I legit started laughing in a waiting room, and people looked at me. Yeah, the fake swearing in this is not great. Probably like God, where you can use God as in reverence, or God as in God. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so Kaladin explains that killing a light eyes isn't why I was made a slave, it's the one I didn't kill that was the problem. So, something to keep in mind. Uh, we get flashbacks, slight flashbacks, that Kaladin's father was a doctor. Mm-hmm. And oh, trained is that, him to be a doctor. Is that what it was? Yes. Okay. I didn't know, it didn't seem clear to me, and maybe I just skimmed over the word doctor, uh, but it didn't seem clear to me whether this was coming off as like, my dad was a cool everyman that knew all of the poultices and forest herbs, or whether it was like specifically doctoring. I guess they might not have specifically said doctor here, but if you read the back of the original printing of the book, it describes Kaladin as the son of a surgeon, so I don't consider it a huge spoiler. You know what? I like Yoko Taro games, so saying you should have read the back of the original printing is kosher. (laughs) I'm just saying I don't consider it a huge spoiler that his dad was a doctor. I can't imagine any situation in which it could possibly be a spoiler. So... In this bit, Kaladin starts getting harassed by a strangely aware Windspren. Whose name is Syl. But we don't know that yet. But we don't know that. She figures out what her name is later. Yeah. Most Spren don't talk or use people's names, so he thinks this is real weird. Yeah, I'm suspicious that this is something else. Yeah. It might not be. I mean, I have no idea what it would be. I just am like, when somebody says... You know, 
species doesn't do X as the species is actively doing X and it doesn't exactly look like the other ones, it immediately makes me think like, oh, I've read a book. This isn't the thing that you think it is. Hmm. All right. With his upset about the Sprankle knowing his name, it made me wonder if magic whatever is like names are significant, like knowing a name gives power. But then Not in this it didn't really seem like it after and future conversations with it. But that's what my initial initial thought was. It just got him shook because Spren don't speak original sentences. Mm. Like, at most, they mimic people. So he's a little shook that she's saying new things and saying his name. Got it. Congratulations, your Spren has evolved. So then we get the bit where Calvin tries to convince Tavlokov to uh, treat a sick slave by just giving him a little bit of extra water. But instead, Tavlokov kills him. Yeah. As I said, there's sort of a shtick in these first few chapters of like, but wait, it gets worse because we're trying to like get Kaladin to the lowest point possible. And luckily, I think I got us to the point where that shtick is done. That would be nice. From like this point onward, it sort of levels off and there's actually like story progress happening. Like I, I sort of picked the end of this section as like, this is how far you would need to read to sort of know what the book is about. Not okay. necessarily that the story has really gotten going. It's faster than Wheel of Time. It is. I think Tyler's just salty that I, I like this more than Wheel of Time. I'm super not. <laughs> so that's chapter two. Uh, wait, wait, wait. Yeah, go uh, for it. You missed that at the end of this chapter, there's like... A page of description about something called a sky eel? Yeah, it's a excerpt from Shalon's sketchbook. Does your version have, like, the sketches? It does yeah. have the sketches, but our version also doesn't let us... It lets us zoom in enough to see the picture, but if you zoom in enough that the text is large enough to read, it becomes too low resolution to be legible. So all we can see is that there are a bunch of notes around pictures of sky eels... That's around where my ebook is at as well. But yeah, that is supposed to be an in-world excerpt from Shalon's sketchbook. Understood. And it's setting us up to learn about her. Yes. Uh, because chapter three, City of Bells, we have a new POV character. Shalon. Rich girl. Yes. No. Uh, no? No, isn't her whole family like destitute? She's like a fake rich girl. Yeah, they're like dirt farmers. They're a noble family with a lot of... It's just they're not very liquid. She has, like, all the connections of a rich person. And she's been raised and educated and interacted with. She just um, is, is no longer rich. She has the prestige, but nothing to back it up. I would just take issue with the specific word rich. She's like, um, I mean, like you said... Bougie. She's, is that better? She's Yeah, she would be rich, except that, oops, we were secretly picking up a handful of dirt and moving it across. She's actively falling from grace financially. But she has all of the airs of a rich person. But she's not very well trained, as we'll find out. Well, that could also just be that this person has been approached 12 times in this year. Yes. And then also... We'll get to it. Your humor's bad. Anyway, so we get to Shalon. 
She is a fiery-haired young woman sailing into Carbranth. Uh, she's trying to follow someone named Yasna Colon and is trying to become her scholarly ward. We get a note that says that when Shalon has the ability to sort of have a photographic memory, she can blink and fix things in her mind to sketch later. Okay, that's really good to know, because she keeps talking about blinking and fixing things in her mind, and I didn't know if that was, like, a trick that she knew that she was taught because of the drawing thing was, like, commit it to memory, or if it was a literal, like, I can blink and then call upon the memory later, which... Hey, it's if, a, if it's that second thing, I, I wonder if this and Mistborn take place in the same multiverse. It's a bit of both. It's like supposed to be somewhere between a highly developed skill and something a bit weird about her. Okay. We'll get to it. A weird thing about her that she has developed into a skill. Yeah. Interesting. So? Coughs in um, copper. Does she get called brightness because of her eyeballs and hair or because of her station or her perceived station? Her eyeballs and station. Yeah, I was going to say, I think she mentions that like her eyeballs are bright, but her hair is wrong. Yeah, the Alethi sort of ideal is you have light eyes and dark hair. Hmm. She has light eyes and bright red hair. So we get a bit of banter between her and the sailors that I'm just going to throw out there is sort of intentionally cringy. Okay, well that's good to know that that's on purpose because, oh my god. I Like, I wasn't going to make fun of it on air because I didn't want to make you feel bad, but oh my god. Yeah, if you were feeling the cringe from it, it's not on, it's not an accident. Okay, yeah, that's really good to know. I, I was like, I hate this character. I never want to read about her again if this is... I'm just going to say, just give it a second. Sando knows what he's doing, even if it feels cringy right now. That is really good to know. I feel much better about this section, knowing that that was on purpose. Yeah, I had a feeling that that would need to be addressed. Bjorn? I honestly was not cringed by this. I kind of just was like, okay, we got this rich girl, and she's privileged, and she's going forth on her journey. Things are probably going to happen to her that aren't going to be very fun, and she'll develop into a more fully rounded character. That's also true. I I, I wasn't <laughs> cringed <laughs> about it. I was just kind of like, okay, this is our contrast. We get to see the dark-eyed dude who's suffering. Big suffer, big trauma. For big boys. <laughs> and we get to see this light-eyed girl and how she's benefiting-ish in society and how their different paths are going to go. I kind of just figured it was, I'm a girl. This is my point of view. Did you know that I'm a girl from a rich family who's no longer rich? Follow my story in. Well, like, Vin isn't written that badly. So I assumed that it was, that he hadn't, like, regressed in writing ability. A, she's not the only female POV we'll get. <gasps> B, this is intentional. Her okay. quote-unquote quick wit isn't treated as sort of a good thing about her that's like, you should love her because she makes quippy one-liners that turn into, like, five-liners. Yeah, but it's not even one-liners, it's just like intentionally doing the Drax thing of like, what do you mean that's a turn of phrase? I'm choosing to interpret it literally. Therefore, you're dumb. It's like, I, I, no, thank you. So I'm just saying give it a second. I will give it a second. It is not supposed to be like 
the most witty person in the world. I will say, I feel much better about this section. We're not even done with it. But hearing you continually say, like, it's known that the first part of this book is tough. This jump is tough. This dialogue is intentionally cringy. Like, so far, you have pretty much hit every point that I felt bad on. So I already feel much better. As I have said, this section is probably the hardest part of the book. Okay. The rest feels a lot more like reading an actual book rather than, like, getting started reading a book. Well, then maybe I should also be doing the thing where I read ahead so that I can assuage my own fear. If you want. I mean, that way we could have a more similar dynamic to when reading Will a Time where, like, Jesse was ahead of me and knew more, but not everything. Shouldn't you yeah. be the one reading all the way ahead? That would be an interesting reversal. If I read all the way ahead, then I'm going to, like, just keep reading. That's fine. <laughs> but then I have to take notes. No. You just have to look knowingly at Discord when Jesse says, I guess we'll find out about why this prologue to the series is 4,500 years ago and who the whatever his name is, T-Dog, and you'd be like, <laughs> Uh, and Jesse'd be like, uh, and I'd be like, uh. <laughs> Anyways. We were in chapter three. Yeah. So we get a lot more stuff about Shalon being a naive rich girl mm-hmm. who's never actually had to handle her own money before. Uh, we get a bit of flavor about the way money works. You have little glass spheres with different sized gems in them. Which is so dangerous and so stupid. What are you thinking about that? Just like carrying around money marbles. Either you have to make the glass so strong and stable that it can handle anything, which therefore means like, are the gems ever used? Why? What is this currency? And, like, carrying around magical power seems a bad idea just to throw in anyone's purse. So the thing is, um, the reason that different gemstones are worth different amounts is because... So we see in this section that Yasna has this uh, item called a soul caster. And essentially, it's an item that lets people use the stormlight inside of gems in sort of a way that resembles magic, but isn't magic. Yeah, the, the, the magic stick that she's there to steal. Is this mad? It's not a stick. It's like a uh, bracelet. Yeah, it's like, it's like two rings and a bracelet connected by a bunch of chains. With a gem set in it. Yeah. I don't know, for some reason I just got like some disproportionately large magical staff stick. Like, I that's what I imagined it, like magical transformation style. It's not. Well... It's a bracelet and ring with chains and slots for gems. She's going to cut off her hand and steal it. So this is Magitek, right? Yeah. Because I'm way more hype if this is Magitek. Essentially. Okay. It's a thing that lets you do stuff that's essentially magic without having to be able to do magic. Which is cool. You know, magic for everybody. So you can use the stormlight of gems inside of spheres without having to crack the spheres open. Okay. Which Zesty also didn't have to do. Yeah, he just takes a deep breath and all of the stormlight inside the gems comes to him. Okay. How convenient. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. That, I guess we'll get to it. It just seems really, it like adds an extra dimension to it. If, if we're assuming, which I guess I am, that Zesty's 
ability to just consume the stormlight and then output it as magic is a function specific to his once every few hundred years magic and nobody else has anything that does something like that and that therefore the only way to expend stormlight is through these specific pieces of magitech or by i guess breaking it open which i didn't know but you just said and i feel like isn't a huge spoiler uh you don't have to break anything open okay the the only common use of stormlight is as fuel for fabrials which are these things that use stormlight for different effects different pieces of magitech essentially sick so what seth is doing is pretty unheard of okay he's so zesty he's very zesty well that's good to know it it definitely um like recontextualizes a bunch of stuff knowing that that it's not just like he can consume the stormlight and then the special thing about him is how he uses it but knowing nobody consumes the stormlight yeah it makes it totally different and much more interesting to me yeah as i said there's going to be a lot of stuff that i just sort of take for granted because i know this world pretty well at this point so please elaborate and ask questions because i would not have like really thought about it that way it sounds like you and i have the same affliction just in different series yep pretty much so later on shallan is in the main carbranth castle and she worries that Yasna is going to make her renounce her Voran religion because Yasna is an avowed heretic. And we also learn that Shallan's father is dead, but they haven't told anyone that he's dead. And remind me, the religion that she would be forsaking, is that the one that is down with the 9 slash 10 heralds? Yes, uh, Voranism. It's okay. Th- religion that respects the heralds and there's other stuff about we learn later so both her country and alethkar are Voran countries okay and i totally um i don't remember at all were they saying that this uh princess just doesn't have a religion or that she has a different one or did they not say so yasna is the daughter of the king that was killed in the prologue right and she has just renounced the Voran religion as just sort of a sham and has no religion. Okay. So that's as far as we get in this chapter. Sick. So chapter four is called The Shattered Plains. I have to point out the death quote. I'm dying, aren't I? Healer, why do you take my blood? Who is that beside you with his head of lines? I can see a distant sun, dark and cold, shining in a black sky. And there's like six different plot points in this quote that I understand perfectly. It's pretty wild. I just have to sometimes admire the amount of wild planning that goes into what Brandon Sanderson has done. I mean, that's totally fine. I I did the same thing when we started Wheel of Time up again. I specifically remember there being times where I would read a note and be like, this is like a description of the end of the series. I will say, as somebody who doesn't know any of that, this reads less to me... That specific quote and you saying that that means a lot of things reads less to me like um, like the stuff in Wheel of Time where it's like this is something that you would skim over and means nothing versus something that's more like a quote in like Worm where it's like this is gibberish. I mean it is sort of gibberish for now. And so. that's what I mean is like it's just different kinds of foreshadowing. Mm-hmm. So in this chapter they're continuing to roll along in the slave carriages we get a bit of a note that 
the way seasons work on this planet. It's so weird. Yeah, hopefully they'd have some weeks of spring again soon. Weather and seasons were unpredictable. You never knew how long they would go on, though typically each would last a few weeks. That makes agriculture real messy. Yeah. Yeah, we get we see a lot of stuff about... So this chapter, we also see what a high storm is, and we see that a lot of plants on this world will retract when exposed to stimulus. So essentially, all the plants that survive on this world are like polyps with retractable vines and like yeah and the I, ecology here is really different yeah i don't remember if it's this chapter or chapter six i think but kaladin makes a point about like you could plant something and it would sprout and it almost sounded like a like a coconut or like something the size of a watermelon and like you break it open and there's grain inside yeah that's this chapter okay <laughs> well it's like super weird right don't laugh at me no it's just i'm just imagining like taking a big ol' and then it's just like yeah your grain sir enjoy it's very different it's not how it works here yeah there is a although you might want to get to it in the actual point i was just gonna say this is definitely the chapter where i was like wow I sure hope Kaladin gets better real quick, because I super don't care about how, like, edgy and mean he is. Like, it's fine, it just doesn't make me want to read about him when this is our hero, where he's, like, tearing up the map and throwing it at people, and it's described as double handfuls of confetti. This made him seem like he was 19. (laughs) Yeah, and, like... I didn't say he wasn't a bad guy. He's just a likable guy. Those are the worst kind. When you kill them, you end up feeling guilty for it. It's like, I will accept that he gets better, but gosh, I hope that starts to happen quick because I don't care about reading, like, Mick Edgelord. I find it really funny how with the the Wheel of Time, I was immediately like, these characters are the worst and I hate them, whereas I'm kind of tolerating them here. And then Tyler's just like, ugh. I don't care about this character yet. Well, like, I have faith that Sanderson is going to write it good and that it will be interesting. He is a competent writer and the writing that he does, like, makes you care and it is interesting to read the words on the page. So I'm just going to say it's not fun right now, but it's necessary for where the character is going. Okay, and that's that's all I'm saying is, like, I just hope that 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 we get going on that. Like, you're not supposed to be loving him as, like, what a cool guy right now. It's, like, what a sad sack of shit. Okay. Well, that's good to know that we're kind of meeting both characters at the low point of likability. Essentially. They have problems that they're going to need to get over, and that's Stormlight Archive. Great. So in the wagons, they weather a high storm, which is our first description of, like, what a high storm is. It's sort of like a big storm front that comes every few days that you need to have shelter in or you'll die. Yeah. And uh, they're just, like, exposing the wagons to all the damp to yeah, be clean. The end. And then, eventually, they arrive at the Shattered Plains. And I was sort of realizing that the chapter with the bridge crews might not make a lot of sense if you don't have, like, a clear picture of what the Shattered Plains looks like. I imagined it... Like, oh god, I can't make this reference. No one would get it. Uh, I imagined it as just, like, a bunch of bluffs and plateaus with 
valleys and rents in the ground in between. So, like, there's literally no way to get between except bridges, and you can't leave the bridges during wartime because the enemy can use them. Yeah, essentially. I have the description here highlighted. It was an enormous riven plane of rock, so wide he couldn't see the other side, that was split and cut by sheer chasms, crevasses, 20 or 30 feet wide. They were so deep that they disappeared into darkness and formed a jagged mosaic of uneven plateaus, some large, others tiny. The expansive plane looked like a platter that had been broken, its pieces then reassembled with small gaps between the fragments. This seems like a bad place to fight. Yeah. The whole, like, a lot of this book is dealing with what a horrible place to wage a war this is. Mm. And there's a reason. I don't know that this is supported in the text whatsoever, but this definitely, I mean, not to be like, the word stone can only ever refer to one thing, and every time somebody says the word stone, it has to be one thing. But, like, this stone seems pretty torn up. Wasn't there something in the first prologue about like stone monsters and leaving giant tears in the ground yeah we also see in the chapter with the bridge crew that the battle takes place on a plateau where a large rock monster has emerged yeah so yeah you're right to make that connection great i mean they don't say that a rock monster has emerged right i want to feel like i was at least a little smart about picking up on that I mean, it's not explicit. It's that, like, after Kaladin passes out, he wakes up and sees that there is, like, the corpse of a rock monster cut open on the plateau that they were fighting on. Yeah, but he's not able to identify it because nobody knows what those look like, right? I mean, I'm just... And And they're not necessarily the same exact thing. It's just the same type of thing. This probably sounds like me trying to be like, no, I was smart, though. Like, I'm literally just... I remember there was something about when he woke up. I just... Remember it being more like there was this strange rock formation that he didn't recognize rather than a thing that looked like the corpse of a monster that would have been made of rock. Anyway, go on. So yeah, essentially, Kaladin gets one last surge of hope because he's where he wanted to be in the first place because this is where the real war is instead of petty battles between landlords. Mm -hmm. And we leave off from there in that chapter. So Shalon is watching Yasna interact with the king of Carbranth named Taravangian, and we get some description of what a soulcaster looks like and does. And essentially, we learn that on Shalon's father's corpse, they found a broken soulcaster and that he wasn't supposed to have, that he was using to create natural resources for his family to sell and make money. Which So Yasna begins sort of interrogating Shalon's credentials as an academic, and we get a lot of pretty interesting, like, just morsels about the world and the way that it works being a scholar. Is I'm sorry, is that what it was supposed to be? What do you mean? Like, I mean, she's supposed to be well-read on a bunch of stuff. I don't know. I guess at some point I started just skimming, because she started asking questions that ended in a bunch of uh, proper nouns and it was like i i liked this chapter because i thought it was interesting to consider the education within the society and how it works and what it's what's considered to be good enough to be taken under as like a ward or something and especially since she mentions in some chapter like the way she was raised versus her brothers being raised and so I, I liked hearing about the the sciences that she is knowledgeable of and the importance that's placed on it, as well as the languages. I just thought it was cool. 
I thought the chapter was interesting, except that I like totally zoned out during the specifics of what she knew because it was like. I mean, there's just like little nut. There's little nuggets like when Yasna's a- asking about Shalon's skill in writing. Shalon brings up that she is known for her glyph wards, and Yasna. I had reason to believe you wanted to be a scholar, not a purveyor of superstitious nonsense. So, like, a we learn like how religious Shalon is in relation to Yasna, as well as sort of what Shalon considers scholarship versus what Yasna considers scholarship. There's just a lot of like contrasting little bits for us to understand who these people are in relation to each other if you're paying attention i guess the way that it the way that it read to me was less like we'll move on okay (laughs) i i one note regarding her education and how shalon thinks there's more things to ask questions on like the feminine arts and everything and then jocelyn's like nah useless um, gives some interesting information in regards to Jocelyn being a heretic and what I'm guessing is more of a patriarchal society with their religion as well. And then also just like someone who dismisses feminine arts. It gives you something to the personality, whether it's like some like older man in power dismissing the feminine arts or 30 year old unmarried person who has power but very much still a woman dismissing mm-hmm. it it just gives a different vibe to it also side note what are what are the animals like in this world because i remember in one of the chapters of slaves like i i stole 17 churls 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 like so- weird lobsters yeah they're essentially massive snails Okay, because then then later shalom's talking about wearing churl button like sorry just like buttons just like chull buttons and i was made of chull shells yeah and i was thinking of chulls as like sheep because like when i think of like herds i don't know i think of animals that eat lots of grass and so then i was like how do you turn a sheep into a button i was just very confused the vast majority of animals on this planet are mollusks yeah they would have to be because of the storms right yeah, and and the the whole water all around them. I was just, I I mean like there there are sheep that live off seaweed, but that's a whole other. But side. they're also not protected from massive storms. Yeah, well, <laughs> the reason that I read them as more lobsters is because they mentioned that they have giant they do, they claws. Do, yeah, they do have pincers that can like tear a person apart. They're just too docile to actually do it. Like if you poke at one enough, it might pinch you a little bit. But they're like. These pincers could absolutely just kill everyone around them. We just bred that out of them. I, I love weird lobsters. Weird lobsters. So after this long walk and talk job interview, Shalon watches Yasna use her soul caster to turn a boulder into smoke. Yeah, which is really cool. But it also just on a physical property things made my brain very confused. Until I decided to just ignore it as magic. It's magic. It's magic. But I was just thinking of the ramifications of, like, changing matter. Yeah. So does Brandon Sanderson. The reason why it's a big deal that Yasna has this is that normally only the priests are allowed to have these soul casters. Yeah, and also they... Shalon mentions specifically that the properties of it are weird immediately after getting poofed into smoke because the um, density is strange. 
So he's thought about a lot of stuff, but I'm sure there's like weird little bits where it's like, that probably shouldn't work like that. Yeah, it's probably Uh, one of those that's like, if you sit down and do the math, then the answer is you're dumb and boring. (laughs) Get a better hobby than tearing the density of a rock turning into smoke apart in a fantasy series. So there's a lot of different things. Like, they talk about how some gems, Stormlight, allows them to make grain-like substances or turn air into stone like but that this one is special right it's like strong enough that it can just turn anything into anything yeah which is why it's important that she has it and not a priest yeah so then yasna gives shalon a final rejection letter (laughs) and then uh we learn what shalon's plan is Six months ago, she had explained a desperate plan to her brothers. She would apprentice herself to Yasna Colon, scholar, heretic. Not for the education, not for the prestige, but in order to learn where she kept her soulcaster, and then Shalon would steal it. I'm hyped. Which makes me just assume that maybe Jasna uh, immediately vetoes people because all these people just want her super awesome soulcaster. I mean, it's something to consider. So, essentially, these last two chapters like leave off with so this is what this character's story is about like if you had only read shallan's first chapter you wouldn't actually know what her deal is and what her story is about in this book mm-hmm. but this last sentence just says okay she's here to steal a stole caster to save her family's like legacy yeah i definitely wouldn't have been my response to this definitely isn't like why weren't all of the kaladin chapters together and then all the shallan chapters but it definitely is like now that you have finished these first few chapters for each of them, you kind of understand what the plan is for these characters. Like, you can see the arc from here. Hopefully not the whole arc. We'll get to it. You can at least see the beginning of, like, now I understand why we're reading about this character. You at least know the premise. Yes. In contrast to something like a bunch of the Wheel of Time prologues are like, why am I reading about this character? I don't care. Like, what is this even about? Yeah, and then you you don't find out for, like, two and a half books when they were off-screen doing something the whole time, and it's like, okay, I guess. Whereas this one is very much like, I don't understand why I care about these characters at all. I mean, yet, I still don't understand why I care about them, but I can at least now understand, like, why I am reading about them, if that yeah. makes sense. You know the premise. Yes. Um... So, we go to chapter 6, bridge 4. This is the one where the thing happens. Where sort of the whole thing happens. Yeah. So, Kaladin gets sold in... Well, he's already a slave. His slave bond gets sold to the someone in a war camp in the Shattered Plains. Yeah, and I just want to point out how, like petulant he is at the start of this with his not during the selling during the selling is fine where he's like trying to get back into being an actual human being that's all well and good but his petulance in the thought of like this time i am gonna make them pay me and pay down my slave price i can't wait to see the looks on their faces 50 years from now when i pay it down (laughs) that'll show them (laughs) it's like it's his last refuge yeah it's like dog how old are you again 19 okay so because he has the Shosh brand for dangerous slaves and has a reputation as a deserter, he is sent to the bridge cruise. Yeah. She's like, oh, we'll be building bridges. That doesn't sound so bad. Yuck, 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 yuck. It's like, I love playing bridge simulator games. He gets in bad with his bridge commander, Gaz. 
Yeah, like one second in. And then this chapter is essentially like a slow unfolding of how much it sucks to be a bridgeman. Yeah. And like this is supposed to be like the final nail in the coffin of like Kaladin's spirit. Of like he didn't think it could get any worse. And he thought that this was the place where honor lived. But it's hell. So essentially he is put on a crew that run bridges by foot and are forced to run in front of the cavalry during cavalry charges and take all the arrows for them. Yeah, this bridge is your shield, also it doesn't protect you. Yeah, it makes you a target. Yeah, if anything, it makes you a target and also stops you from seeing the arrows that are about to kill you. Yeah, so essentially it's a death sentence. Yeah. Anyway, steal this guy's vest. Yeah, uh, Kaladin has a lot of issues with not being properly clothed for it. Yeah. We get a bit of text about how some of the bridgemen wish that they were in Dalinar's army rather than Sedeus's army. They say that that Dalinar is the best of men, the most honorable shardbearer in the king's army. They say that he's never broken his word. Kaladin sniffed in disdain. Much the same had been said about Amaram, which is the, uh, bright lord that he worked for before that he now wants to guillotine yeah i will say i don't know what it is but kaladin maybe it's like quote unquote how the camera treats him um but like kaladin in the last couple chapters with him i was super not into i was like this guy is edgy and it seems like the book likes how edgy he is and like I don't care about anything. I'm just here to tear up your map. But now when he actually falls into, like, my plan is to not die, and if I can get away with not dying, my plan is to just kill everyone. I'm, like, super into it. I very much like the turn of, oh, this guy sucks. Like, you shouldn't like him. I mean, you're supposed to like him. You're just supposed to want better from him. Yeah, I guess I would say that it's the... Not to get too, like... Like, I'm actively reading Ward, so I'm thinking about Worm a lot. Um, So I'm gonna talk about Worm for a second. But it almost feels like Brandon Sanderson is, like, inflicting the second layer of reading Worm on you, where, like, for people that don't know, Worm is a story about a, a bullied girl which I know sounds dumb and YA and it kind of starts off that way, but like becomes very almost revenge fantasy. And because you're in her first person view, you're like getting her self justifications. And so the first layer of reading is, wow, she's really cool. Yeah. I sure hope she shoves a bunch of bugs down her bully's throat and fills her lungs with them. And then the second layer is like, oh, I shouldn't have identified with her. She sucks. And it almost feels like Brandon Sanderson, like does that to you in those first couple chapters with Kaladin, where it's like, he's trying to do his best, but in the end, he's like, man, slavers suck. And it sucks that I have to like this guy, but man, I'm going to kill him anyway. Hey, let's all, uh, no, there's no escape. This is the end for us. And then he, like, forces you to read this chapter, where it's like Kaladin is just broken at the end. He's like, I'm stealing the shoes and vest off this dead guy. Let's just carry the bridge back, and I'll be scarred tomorrow, and that's my life now. Essentially, you're not supposed to like how he is right now. No. No, I guess I just wanted to point out the turn, which happens very quickly. Like, at no point in this do I like him. I guess I just felt like before there was still the possibility of being like, oh, he's so cool. But now you're like forced to confront how sad of a person he is. Pretty much. He's not supposed to be a brooding badass. No. So 
the bridge charges the breach and most of them die. Kaladin doesn't. Hey, good for him. When he wakes up, he has a conversation with uh, his spren, who tells him that her name is Sylphrena. Syl for short. Great. Wait, was that supposed to be a name that I know? No, that's just her name. Okay. I didn't know if this was... The the sprinkle wakes him up, because she's like, they're going to leave you, and you're going to have no bridge, and you're just going to... Yeah, you would have been left behind to die if she hadn't woken him up. I didn't know if this was one of the... Like, the way that you said it almost made it sound like I should recognize it maybe from that intro no, to the series. I was series. just saying that this is the first time her name has been said, so I was saying what her name is. Okay. I because just remember in the that beginning the, you said her name. Yeah, I just remember that the, like, series prologue has, like, ten listed names, and I didn't know if I should be on the lookout for these. No, Syl is not one of the ten heralds. Listen, dog, I don't know. I said I assume that she's either lying or wrong, like... I gotta be keeping my head on a swivel. So just like the last sentence of chapter 5 is Shalon.premise, the last sentences of chapter 6 are Kaladin.premise. Kaladin walked, feeling numb. He'd thought that there was nothing more life could do to him. Nothing worse than the slave's brand with a shosh. Nothing more than losing all he had to the war. Nothing more terrible than failing those he'd sworn to protect. It appeared that he'd been wrong. There had been something more they could do to him. One final torment the world had reserved just for Kaladin. And it was called Bridge 4. So, I like that we're here, like, just as... I don't want to be comparing to Wheel of Time all the time. But just the idea of a soldier sold into slavery and put into like a death crew in a endless war is a bit more of a premise you don't see all the time than group of villagers goes on adventure. Yeah. So now we know like what we're in for essentially. And that's why I decided to cut the section here. Cause now we know where we're headed mostly. Does slavery exist for light eyed people? Uh, as far as I know, no. Okay. So the brown-eyed people who are... Okay, well, I'm, I'm just trying to establish because it's the light-eyed people versus the dark-eyed people, but we've seen the dark-eyed protagonist suffer at the hands of other dark-eyed people. No, this war is light and dark-eyed people are on the same side. Light-eyed people are in charge against the Parshendi. It's yeah. that Kaladin is a dark-eyed that is personally also a slave yeah he is personally in his own mind flipping the script and making it dark eyes versus light eyes but the world sees it as those two are on one side parshendi are on the other yeah like it's just that kaladin is karl marx yeah like (laughs) kaladin is realizing that oops it's about the class system not about yeah so i mean there are dark guys that are not slaves they just live their lives okay like, most of them are not. The vast majority of Dark Eyes are not slaves. They're just, you know, the middle class and the lower class. Yeah, I mean, they mention, or at least imply, that slavery is, like, not illegal. It's just abhorrent and, like, distasteful. And, like, Alethkar has certain rules about slavery, but they still do it. Okay. So it's not that all Dark Eyes are slaves. It's that Kaladin is a slave and he sees it as because of a conflict between him and Light Eyes. Okay. Which isn't a normal perspective in this world. Okay. That is helpful in thinking about the world, because I was very confused about who the fight is against and why. 
in this war, the uh, fight is against the Parshendi because they publicly killed the last king of Alathgar, the previous king of Alathgar. And uh, they talk before that this is war is the result of something that they call the Vengeance Pact, where essentially they have all sworn to eliminate the Parshendi for revenge. And that's what this war is about. Hey kids, do you like genocide? Have I got a pact for you? Essentially. So, we have read 6.5.7 chapters of The Way of Kings. Yeah, and it only took us like two hours to talk about. It's the first section of the first book. It can take some time. We didn't spend this long on the first section of Wheel of Time. We did, actually. Did we? Yeah, after editing, our first episode was two hours and 13 minutes. It was a really long first podcast, honey. Whoops. I think you're just being real salty right now. Oh no, Jesse's right. Yeah, you're just being a salty baby. The salt was mostly a joke. (laughs) I don't really care. So, how are we feeling? Uh, I feel better going into it knowing that it is intended for us to be like, Wow, Shalon seems like a garbage child, and Kaladin seems like a sad person who I don't, like, I'm not supposed to identify with in this moment. And knowing that, like, both of those feelings are intended and that they get better, like, there was no way, let me put it this way, there was no way that that wasn't intended, because I think Brandon Sanderson is too competent, but hearing you having read them and having, and liking these books, saying that that's intended makes me know that that's not just like, yeah, you're supposed to think that they're kind of garbage, but like, no, you're supposed to be like, I these people suck. I mean, the whole point is that these people have issues they need to get over. Yeah. I would say I'm currently neutral, which is better than how I was left with Wheel of Time, which was negative. So you got that going for you. Yeah. It was much easier to read. For real. It, it was. It was... Much simpler. Um, I do not think that I'm going to read ahead simply because it's a lot easier for me to just have that chunk to read. Mm -hmm. Because I'm very bad at maintaining spoilers. I'm the type of person to just casually throw out. And then that happened. And that's true. I do care about spoilers. And since Tyler really does care about spoilers, I think he should be the one to read ahead. Also because I've... I I think I'll be less annoyed to have to sit next to somebody who's making hand gestures the entire time we're talking. I already make hand gestures. Well, less, because these were ones in frustration because you didn't understand why. So if he reads ahead, he'll understand more why, and it'll make it easier for me, the individual. And Tyler can totally, like, cut this out and not make it part of the podcast because it's not relevant anymore. But yeah, I would say overall, I'm feeling very neutral about this. It hasn't, (laughs) it hasn't offended me. I am not offended to have read this. There was a part where the gender of some of the pronouns got a little suspect, but it wasn't important enough to bring up in the moment. Yeah, we didn't get any beyond this made me uncomfortable moments. No, I'm 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 getting a bit of like similar like your vague medieval Euro magic fantasy going on, and I'm getting some patriarchy vibes, but to be honest, that's kind of what I expect, which is unfortunate. And I shouldn't expect and anticipate and just go along with it. But it is neutral for me. It is it is within my assumed assumptions of books I read. I know that doesn't make sense. It's it's something I assume to be true when I pick up a fantasy, whatever. 
this is within the terms and agreement of what sort of books get published. Well, we're going to see more about this world that aren't quite what you're saying. So we'll see it. I think for me where I'm at is like, I don't want more chapters of not having progress for Kaladin and Shallan, but I also definitely want to see a middle ground in this society that isn't sheltered rich girl or actual slave. So good news we've pretty much passed the jankiest part of the beginning so we get to see some progress and tyler surprise there's interlude chapters in this series whoa so you get to see brief viewpoints of characters all around the world in all sorts of situations great sometimes they're a little perplexing like why are we reading this they'll make sense eventually Hmm. so i guess that this has been the third wheel yeah. Do we need to change our name? I hope not. I'm not going to change our name. The third wheel works in the sense of, like, third wheeling. Uh-huh. Because, like, you and Jesse... Wow, you are Jesse. <laughs> Tyler and Jesse, y'all have your connection. Me and Tyler have the connection. I guess, like... You two worked on that book report one time. Yeah. I've heard about that a few times. Yeah. We've known each other. Yeah, we've known each other You two have known each other longer than I've known either of you. Correct. So. True. Yeah. Who's the real third wheel here? Anyways, yeah, this has been the third wheel. Who's the thirdest wheel? <laughs> Maybe you, listener, are the real third wheel here. <laughs> whoa. That's a whoa. On that note, I've been Jesse. I have been Tyler. I am currently being Beown. And you can find us on our Twitter at Wheel Reading. <laughs> I forgot to do that, but uh, link will be in the description. We appreciate all of you. Leave a review if you can. We love you. Whoa, that's moving pretty quick. We appreciate your existence. I don't want them to feel like the third wheel. Please validate us and we'll validate you in turn. We wouldn't have invited you if we didn't want you here. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye. Ah, I should have made a joke about, like, Jesse was Jesse, I will be Tyler, and 